Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And by Whole Mission Marquette Method Natural Family Planning Services. Unveil the mystery of you and your spouse's combined fertility using an evidence-based, highly effective, and moral way of avoiding or achieving pregnancy. Discover more from a licensed healthcare professional at mmnfp.com. Previously on Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. You're listening to episode 159. In this episode, we're talking about zombies. For hundreds of years, there have been reports of strange creatures known as zombies. They're connected with the voodoo religion of the island of Haiti, but in recent years, they've become a pop culture staple. In movies and TV shows, zombies are depicted as reanimated corpses that roam the land seeking to devour human flesh and human brains in particular. So what are zombies? What causes them and what is the basis of this phenomenon? So, Jimmy, what's your preliminary bottom line on zombies? Zombies are a real phenomenon. There are people in Haiti who are considered zombies, and some of them consider themselves zombies. The question is what explains this sociological phenomenon? On that question, I think there's likely more than one explanation that contributes to it. In some cases, it includes factors like mental illness and disabilities, premature burial, mistaken identity, hoaxing or fraud, and the social role that zombies know how to play based on being brought up in a culture that believes in them. However, there may be other, more mysterious factors, which we'll talk about next time. And you'll want to hear our next episode because the story is about to get much stranger. We're going to be hearing about the best documented case of zombies zombification, a man whose death was medically certified and who was not a case of mistaken identity, and we'll be talking about the role of secret societies in Haiti and what's reportedly the real reason for zombification, which isn't just to get cheap labor. You're listening to episode 160 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're going deeper into the mystery of zombies. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to stick around for the end of the episode, as we'll have your feedback on our recent episode on the Vatican Secret Archives. But first, Haitian zombies are a real phenomenon. But what explains them? Are they just mentally ill people who the community regards as zombies? Or could there be something more sinister going on? There are reports that Haitian sorcerers actively turn people into zombies using a combination of magic and poisons. Are sorcerers really behind the zombie phenomenon? What kind of drugs do they use? And do they really have supernatural powers? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. 
So at the end of our previous episode, we were discussing non-exotic factors that may play a role in the Haitian zombie phenomenon, including things like mental illness, premature burial, and mistaken identity. But you were about to tell us about the role of voodoo sorcerers, known as bokors, and how they might actively turn people into zombies. In fact, you were about to tell us about a man who was at the center of the most famous case of zombification. Who was he, and why is his case so famous? His name was Clairvius Narcisse, and he was born in 1922. In this episode's artwork, we have a picture of Mr. Narcisse sitting on his original grave. As to why his case is so famous, Harvard anthropologist Wade Davis writes in his book, Passage of Darkness, What made this case noteworthy was the fact that Narcisse had been pronounced dead in 1962 at the Albert Schweitzer Hospital, an American-directed philanthropic institution that maintains precise and accurate records. Therefore, in addition to the death certificate, Dr. Lamarck Duyon was able to obtain a medical dossier outlining the history of the case and the particular symptoms suffered by the patient at the time of his demise. According to these records, Narcisse was pronounced dead on May 2nd by two attending physicians, one an American, both American-trained, and his death and subsequent burial eight hours later were witnessed by family members. Here's what happened in more detail. In the spring of 1962, a Haitian peasant, aged about 40, approached the emergency entrance of the Albert Schweitzer Hospital in Deschapelles in the Artibonite Valley in west-central Haiti. He was admitted under the name of Clairvius Narcisse at 9.45 p.m. on April 30, complaining of fever, body aches, and general malaise. He had also begun to spit blood. His condition deteriorated rapidly, and at 1.15 p.m. on May 2nd, he was pronounced dead by two attending physicians, one of them an American. His sister, Angelina Narcisse, was present at his bedside and immediately notified the family. Shortly after Narcisse's demise, an elder sister, Marie Claire, arrived and identified the body, affixing her thumbprint to the official death certificate. The body was placed in cold storage for 20 hours, then taken for burial. At 10 a.m. on May 3, 1962, Clervius Narcisse was buried in a small cemetery north of his village of Lestere, and ten days later, a heavy concrete memorial slab was placed over the grave by the family. Then, 18 years go by, but in 1980, a man walked into the Lestere marketplace and approached Angelina Narcisse. He introduced himself by a boyhood nickname of the deceased brother, a name that only intimate family members knew and that had not been used since the siblings were children. The man claimed to be Clairvius and stated that he had been made a zombie by his brother because of a land dispute. In Haiti, the official Napoleonic Code states that land must be divided among male offspring. According to Narcisse, he had refused to sell off his part of the inheritance, and his brother had, in a fit of anger, contracted out his zombification. Immediately following Clairvius's resurrection from the grave, he was beaten and bound, then led away by a team of men to the north of the country where for two years he worked as a slave with other zombies. Eventually, the zombie master was killed, and the zombies, freed from whatever force kept them bound to him, dispersed. Narcisse spent the next 16 years wandering about the country, fearful of the vengeful brother. It was only upon hearing of his brother's death that he dared return to his village. So the doctors began to investigate his case. Dr. Duyon, meanwhile, had considered various ways to test the truth of Narcisse's claim. Exhuming the grave would have proved little, 
If the man was an imposter, he or conspirators could well have removed the bones. On the other hand, had Narcisse actually been taken from the grave as a zombie, those responsible might have substituted another body, which by then would be impossible to identify, given the absence of dental records and the lack of facilities in Haiti. Instead, working directly with family members, Duyon designed a series of questions concerning Narcisse's childhood, questions that not even a close boyhood friend could have answered. These, the man claiming to be Narcisse, answered correctly. Over 200 residents of Lestere were certain that Narcisse had returned to the living. Moreover, there was no apparent social or economic incentive that would have led Narcisse or his family to perpetrate a fraud. By the time the BBC arrived, Duyon, as well as doctors Klein and Lehman, who had themselves studied the case, were convinced. To close the circle, the BBC took a copy of the death certificate to Scotland Yard, and forensic specialists there verified that the fingerprints belonged to the sister, Marie Claire. All of this was in the early 1980s, of course, which was before DNA fingerprinting tests. Today, we just do a DNA test to see if he's really part of the family and be done with it. But he passed the tests that they had available at the time. By checking the medical records and doing new interviews with Mr. Narcisse, the investigators were able to determine what symptoms he was presenting with at the time of his apparent death in 1962. That would give them clues about what kind of poison might have been used on him. And Mr. Narcisse believed that he had been poisoned. Before he died, he said that his skin had come on fire with a feeling of insects crawling beneath it. A scar he bore on his right cheek just to the edge of his mouth had been caused by a nail driven through the coffin. Quite incredibly, he recalled remaining conscious throughout his ordeal, and although completely immobilized, he had heard his sister weeping by his deathbed. He remembered his doctor pronouncing him dead. Both at and after his burial, his overall sensation was that of floating above the grave. This was his soul, he claimed, ready to travel on a journey that would be curtailed by the arrival of the Bokor and his assistants. He could not remember how long he'd been in the grave by the time they arrived. They called his name and the ground opened. He heard drums, a pounding, a vibration, and then the Bokor singing. He could barely see. They grabbed him and began to beat him with a whip. They tied him with a rope and wrapped his body in black cloth. Bound and gagged, he was led away on foot by two men. For half the night, they walked north until their party was met by another, which took custody of Narcisse. Traveling by day and hiding out by night, Narcisse was passed from one team to the next until he reached the sugar plantation that would be his home for two years. Eventually, the Boker was killed by one of the zombies and Narcisse was free, though he didn't go home for years because of his vengeful brother, who he believed had ordered the zombification hit on him in the first place. A very significant thing about his experience is the claim that he remained conscious throughout the time he was supposedly dead, which would indicate a drug that can paralyze without producing unconsciousness. That's a very significant clue. Eventually, Mr. Narcisse passed on to his reward in 1994, 32 years after his original death. What do they conclude about the kind of drug he was given? Actually, some suspect that there are at least two drugs, one to simulate death and one to keep zombies under control after they're revived. This view is explored in Garth Haslam's short ebook, Zombies, History, Belief, and Modern Ideas. First, Haslam summarizes the way Mr. Narcisse felt during the period he was being used as a zombie laborer on a sugar plantation. Narcisse explained that, as a zombie, he was aware of his situation missed his family and home, 
yet felt like he was in a dreamlike state where everything looked impossible to do and he instantly followed orders without really thinking about it. Only after his Bokor master had been killed did Narcisse state he regained his ability to make his own decisions and to see the world in proper perspective. So that dreamlike state sounds like one in which he's on some kind of drug, but how was the drug delivered to him? You'll recall that zombies are supposed to eat a salt-free diet, and they can turn on their masters if they're given salt to eat. Haslam has a very interesting theory about that. Narcisse told a few different versions of the way he was freed from being a zombie, but the essential details are this. Of the 150 or so zombies that Narcisse existed with at the plantation, all were being given just one salt-free meal a day. Then about two years into Narcisse's servitude, one of the zombies started to refuse his daily meal. This continued long enough that the Bokor took to beating the zombie to try and make him eat, and it was during one of these beatings that Narcisse says this zombie flew into a rage, grabbed a hoe, and killed the Bokor. So the questions are, why did the zombie refuse to eat, and did that somehow allow it the ability to take action against the Bokor? Narcisse also adds on a strange end to his story in one interview, claiming that after the Bokor's death, his wife gave each of the zombies a little salt to eat, including Narcisse, and that once he'd eaten the salt, the dreamlike quality of his world vanished, and he could see things as they really were again. What he had formerly thought to be an impassable, raging river to one end of the plantation now revealed itself as no more than a small stream, so Narcisse was claiming that salt had been used to free him and the others in exactly the way the stories of Haitian zombies claimed it could. Still, it seems unlikely that any drug in a person's body could be instantly neutralized by salt, so this addition to Narcisse's tale of escape has been generally ignored. There is, however, another possible reason for giving zombies a salt-free diet that could explain the behavior of the zombie that set Narcisse and the others free. Salt-free food is extremely easy to detect when eaten. With most recipes that require salt, leaving the salt out while doing every other step correct will result in a dish that tastes entirely different. So, while a salt-free dish may be a social signal to zombies of their unique status, it could also act as a warning signal to Bokors if they accidentally grab food from the wrong pot. Perhaps the meals given to the zombies not only lack salt, but also include a drug that makes them take orders. A drug that takes a little time to build up in a person's body, so a small dose accidentally eaten by a Bokor would not be harmful. Such a drug would also take a little time to clear out of a person's body as well, which might require not eating for a few days to clear your head. This would mean that the salt-free diet is both a social sign to the zombies and a means of applying a controlling drug. So perhaps the absence of salt in the zombie food is a signal to alert bokers that they're eating the wrong thing, the food that has the second drug in it, if they're eating something that tastes saltless and bland. So interesting theory. What do people who conduct research along these lines think are in the two drugs? A variety of ingredients, and there's almost certainly not a single formula. This is folk medicine, and so each boker probably has his own recipe. But they have interviewed bokers about what they put in the drug to make someone a zombie. The Lancet reports, We interviewed two sorcerers and attended the Pile Fei, sorcery protection, ceremonies of the first. Like most sorcerers, he had his own temple as well as being the convener of one of the secret societies, Zobop, Bizango, Cochongri, Sect Rouge, which have been implicated in zombification and which are illegal under sections 224 and 227 of the Penal Code. The second Bokor had converted to Protestant evangelicalism, 
is now a well-known opponent of voodoo and holds dramatic church meetings at which he gives lurid accounts of his past sorcery. Neither had been implicated in the above cases. Both knew the other by reputation and maintained surprisingly cordial relations. The first Bokor showed us bottles which contained captured zombie astrals, that is, zombie souls, but said he had sold all his zombie cadavers to local cultivators and other Bokors, a common explanation when questioned by outsiders. Contact with them would be dangerous for us. Both provided the names of other plant and animal ingredients similar to those obtained by Davis. They were quite open about their sorcery and referred us to other Bokors for confirmation of their abilities. The Lancet researchers report that Ingredients mentioned by Haitian Bokors as zombifacients include human remains, a polycate worm, toads, lizards, and tarantulas. First, I love the word zombifacients, obviously from zombie and the Latin word facere, which means to make or to do. So a zombifacient is an ingredient you need to make a zombie. A polycate worm, also known as a bristle worm, is a kind of sea creature that would be caught by Haitian fishermen. The ingredients mentioned here, human remains, worm parts, toads, lizards, and tarantulas, were likely inactive ingredients, at least in the main, uh, ingredients that don't materially contribute to causing a person to go into a death-like coma. What would the active ingredient in the zombie poison be? Tetrodotoxin, or TTX. This is a neurotoxin that is found in a variety of marine creatures, including the pufferfish that are harvested off the coast of Haiti. And they're harvested because in Haiti, like in Japan, pufferfish is considered a great delicacy. In Japan, it's called fugu, and you have to have a special license as a chef in order to prepare it. Even with the licensing requirements, multiple people die every year in Japan from eating improperly prepared fugu. But while TTX kills if you get too much of it, it has other effects if you get it in lesser amounts. According to Wikipedia's summary of different sources, those effects include paresthesia, that is tingling of the lips and tongue, is followed by developing paresthesia in the extremities, hypersalivation, sweating, headache, weakness, lethargy, incoordination, tremor, paralysis, cyanosis, a blue tinge to the skin, aphonia, dysphagia, and seizures. The gastrointestinal symptoms are often severe and include nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. Death is usually secondary to respiratory failure. There is increasing respiratory distress, speech is affected, and the victim usually exhibits dyspnea, midriasis, and hypotension, low blood pressure. Paralysis increases and convulsions, mental impairment, and cardiac arrhythmia may occur. The victim, although completely paralyzed, may be conscious and in some cases completely lucid until shortly before death, which generally occurs within four to six hours, range of about 20 minutes to about eight hours. However, some victims enter a coma. If the patient survives 24 hours, recovery without any residual effects will usually occur over a few days. And at the time of his 1962 death, Clairvius Narcisse exhibited many of these symptoms, including being conscious throughout the entire experience but being unable to move due to paralysis. If people die every year in Japan from eating improperly prepared fugu, wouldn't it be dangerous to use TTX in a drug to make a zombie? Absolutely. Garth Haslam explains, Granted, it's a dangerous trick. Too much poison and the victim simply dies. 
If buried too long, they suffocate. Davis guessed that the reason so many of the recovered zombies that had been examined in the past were mentally deficit was due to a combination of just a little too much zombie powder and or just a little too little oxygen during their stay underground, resulting in permanent brain damage. This also explained why rural Haitians would often identify any strange person displaying signs of mental disease as a zombie. So this would be very dangerous, as you might not give the prospective zombie the right dose of TTX or get them out of the grave in time. But dangerous criminals are willing to do dangerous things. Otherwise, they wouldn't be dangerous criminals. What about the active ingredient in the second drug, the one used to revive or control the zombie after he's taken out of the tomb? Deuterostromonium, also known as jimson weed, has been proposed as the active ingredient in this drug. You may recall from episode 132 on Carlos Castaneda that jimson weed was one of the psychoactive compounds that figured in his story. It's used by some Native Americans in the Southwest for ritual purposes. Wade Davis found some evidence that Deutera was being used on zombies when they were newly taken out of the grave. He didn't find evidence that it was being used on an ongoing basis after that, but it could be very useful for bokers to keep giving it to their zombies, or they might have something else that would have similar effects. According to Wikipedia's summary, Datura intoxication typically produces delirium, hallucination, hyperthermia, overheating, tachycardia, rapid heartbeat, bizarre behavior, urinary retention, and severe mitriasis, dilation of the pupils, with resultant painful photophobia or light sensitivity that can last several days. Pronounced amnesia is another commonly reported effect. The onset of symptoms generally occurs around 30 to 60 minutes after ingesting the herb. These symptoms generally last from 24 to 48 hours, but have been reported in some cases to last as long as two weeks. So if you're a bokor, you could give your zombies one meal a day of porridge containing just enough detura to keep them stoned for 24 to 48 hours. That would induce a dreamlike state and seeming forgetfulness, amnesia, which would be helpful in keeping a person zombified. It also could explain some of the bizarre behaviors of zombies. And the severe dilation of the pupils would make them light-sensitive and help keep them inside during the daytime while letting them go out and do work at night. And if a zombie starts refusing to eat his daily meal, like the one that killed the Bokor who had control of Mr. Narcisse, it would be a serious matter because the effects of the Dutura would generally wear off after a day or two. Also, if a Bokor dies and stops feeding his zombies, they will regain their senses and leave, though they may not return to fully normal mental function if they've experienced brain damage as part of their experience, such as being sealed in a tomb for hours and denied enough oxygen, or if they were handicapped or mentally ill in the first place. Like I said, Davis wasn't able to get evidence of ongoing Dutura use after the initial revival of a zombie, but you can see how its effects would be helpful in keeping a zombie under control, and if it's not Dutura, there may be a third substance that's used on zombies on an ongoing basis. Have researchers been able to retrieve and analyze any samples of these zombie drugs? Bokers have been willing to talk about what they use in their medicines, and they've confirmed pufferfish and Dutura. 
And they have given samples of what they said was their medicine to researchers. But when these samples have been analyzed, they haven't so far shown clinically significant amounts of the substances in question. To the extent the lab analysts have been able to tell, the samples have been inert, either without active ingredients or without enough of the active ingredients. What would explain this? Well, it's led to a debate over the zombie drug hypothesis. Those who are skeptical of the hypothesis think that the Bokers are hoaxing the researchers. In other words, they don't think they have an effective zombie drugs and they're just stringing the researchers along. Or the Bokers might believe that their drug works, but it's really a placebo rather than something that's truly effective, like many folk preparations. A rival hypothesis is that the Bokers simply aren't giving the researchers the good stuff. In other words, they're giving them fake medicines to keep the real formula a secret. Bokors would seem to have an incentive not to give researchers the actual drug, given that zombification is illegal in Haiti. Right. You wouldn't want the researchers to know how you and your fellow Bokers do what you do. You wouldn't want to hand over a dangerous drug that could be used in court to convict you of zombification, which is considered murder under Haitian law. And you wouldn't want to confirm the existence of a real zombie drug that could make the authorities take this seriously and start a crackdown on you and your fellow Bokors. It would be in the interest of the Bokor community to keep this a trade secret precisely to avoid that kind of crackdown. And there might even be a snitches get stitches rule in the Bokor community, and your life might be under threat if you handed over the drug. So this one is ambiguous. On the one hand, we don't have samples of the drug that would prove it's effective, but the Bokors would have reasons not to hand over such samples. If the families are so concerned about their relatives becoming zombies, why don't they just stamp out the Bokors? Why don't they petition the government to start a crackdown? Haiti is a nation that faces a lot of challenges, and there could be a variety of reasons why such a crackdown hasn't happened. One is that Bokors who make zombies, being essentially dangerous and influential criminals, might do what influential criminals do in other parts of the world threaten and bribe the authorities. Corruption is something that happens in every nation, and it happens in Haiti like anywhere else. But there's another reason a crackdown wouldn't occur. Some of the local communities themselves may be complicit. Last episode, we heard part of a National Geographic interview with a couple of voodoo practitioners, including a priestess. Here's another clip from that interview where the priestess speaks. According to tradition, slaves who practiced voodoo created zombies. They used to use it in time of slavery. If I'm plotting against the master and one of the slaves, which is my brothers and sister or my family member, is going to sell me out, we're not going to kill a member of the family. We're just going to uh, make it appear that you are dead and take care of you in the back room where they will never see you again. But you still exist, you're still living, we're still feeding you. So back before slavery was illegal, if you didn't want the master to know about something you were doing and a fellow member of the community was going to rat you out, the snitches get stitches rule 
could apply. You could get turned into a zombie made to look like you were dead and buried, getting you off the master's radar when you were secretly revived and taken care of in an impaired state. And if the Dutura hypothesis for the second drug is correct, your new photosensitivity would help keep you in the back room during the daytime. Here's what another voodoo practitioner says in the same interview. In voodoo, we do not believe in hurting people for no reason whatsoever. Zombification is a way to keep certain people from getting out of hand. He's saying that in the local communities today, zombification is used as a way of controlling people who otherwise might do problematic things. In other words, if you're a troublemaker, the community could get a bokor to take care of you by turning you into a zombie and stopping whatever problem you're creating. And that fits with the investigation that Wade Davis conducted. Garth Haslam summarizes, In talking to a wide variety of people across the island, Davis discovered that zombies were not what foreigners thought, unfortunate victims being exploited for cheap labor. The truth was far stranger. Simply put, zombies are bad workers. They're not fast, they're not careful, and they're not efficient. So there's no advantage to having zombies work a field compared to just paying locals to do the same work. So zombies were not being created to be a labor force. In addition, people were not being chosen at random to become zombies, and it wasn't just a matter of whim or personal gratification on the part of the Bokor performing the deed. In most cases, the person who would become a zombie was being punished for some social transgression. The choice of turning a person to a zombie did not usually rely on an individual choice, but on a group decision. And that group decision was usually being made by a local secret society. Davis's greatest discovery, other than the identity of the active ingredient in the zombie powder, was that rural Haiti, which is most of the country, is actually ruled and governed by these secret societies, and that the legends and tales of zombies that terrify the citizens of the country are largely to remind them of what the greatest punishment is for those people who disrupt the normal social order. Zombies were, for the most part, people who didn't follow the rules of society and were not respectful to others. Clavius Narcisse refused to marry or to acknowledge a number of children he'd fathered, and was extremely greedy. Another zombie, Tifem, was a chronic thief, wouldn't marry who her family told her to, and was disliked and untrusted by the other women in the market she frequented. And this could bring a new aspect to the social role of being a zombie. When TTX is applied properly and absorbed through the skin, a victim could be brought to a death-like state in a matter of days that would fool all but the most exacting examiners and the victim would also remain aware of what was happening throughout. This awareness was critical to the Bokor's job as well, for the victim would know they were being buried and then recovered from their graves, so they would know they were becoming a zombie, as all the tales of their childhood had told them. Thus, the zombies would know what was happening to them, and if they knew or suspected that they were being punished for a social transgression by the community, that would make them more likely to stay in servitude and play the role of the zombie. After all, if you left, you couldn't go back to your community if they were the ones who put the zombification hit on you. Notice that even after he escaped being a zombie after two years, Mr. Narcisse didn't go back to his community for 16 more years, well after his brother was dead. We'll continue the story of Clarius Narcisse after we take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Noralyn S., Matthew B., 
James B., Paul E., and David B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And by Whole Mission Marquette Method Natural Family Planning Services. Unveil the mystery of you and your spouse's combined fertility using an evidence-based, highly effective, and moral way of avoiding or achieving pregnancy. Discover more from a licensed healthcare professional at mmnfp.com. So, Jimmy, wouldn't it be hard to keep something like this secret? Wouldn't it come to the attention of authorities? Clavius Narcisse said he was working on a sugar plantation with 150 other zombies. Yes, and he said this was happening between 1962 and 1964, when conditions in Haiti were quite different and things weren't as easily monitored and documented as they are now. I mean, back then people didn't have cell phones that they could just take footage with. Also, he indicated that his perceptions were altered at the time. He thought a small stream was actually a raging river. Maybe he thought a handful of workers was a much larger workforce, or maybe there was a larger workforce, but it was of normal workers and he mistook them for fellow zombies. There are any number of possibilities here. However, Haiti's population density is one of the arguments against what we might call the medical zombie hypothesis, that some zombies are caused by drugs, as opposed to the mental health zombie hypothesis, which holds that they're people with mental illness. Haiti is a small country, but it has a population of 11 million. It has a population density of about 400 people per square mile. The authors in The Lancet write that Bocors actually enslave zombies on secret agricultural grounds is implausible given the high population density of Haiti. Zombies have never been identified in captivity, but only on their return. Actually, there have been historical reports of people meeting zombies while they were in captivity, but the authors are right that this hasn't happened recently and been documented. But they also acknowledge something else. You see, for basically 30 years, from 1957 to 1986, Haiti was ruled by a brutal military dictatorship headed initially by Francois Papadoc Duvalier. The authors in The Lancet note, Under the Duvaliers, who mobilized the voodoo priests known as Hungans as their secret police, and in the lengthy period of political terror, social instability, and economic blockade during and after the Duvalier regime, there were numerous cases of abduction, torture, and secret homicide cloaked in voodoo, maintained by state terror and suspicions of sorcery. So maybe some of those abductions cloaked in voodoo were incidents of zombification. And the government turned a blind eye because it was part of the plan with the Duvalier regime using voodoo for its own ends, including punishing and neutralizing people that were considered problematic, just like we heard earlier. And after all, if zombies are being deliberately created, used to do work, and even sold from one boker to another, it's essentially a form of human trafficking. 
Human trafficking occurs all over the world, even in developed countries like the United States, where it's actively fought by law enforcement. Human trafficking does occur in Haiti, and the nation has been making progress in recent years. But according to a recent report from the U.S. State Department, The government of Haiti does not fully meet the minimum standards for the elimination of trafficking, but is making significant efforts to do so. The government demonstrated overall increasing efforts compared to the previous reporting period. Therefore, Haiti remained on Tier 2. These efforts included investigating more traffickers, establishing an executive secretariat to improve monitoring and analysis of trafficking within the National Anti-Trafficking Committee, addressing the weak judicial system and lack of awareness about trafficking among law enforcement officials with targeted training, prosecuting labor trafficking offenses, and building capacity for alternative shelters for vulnerable minors. However, the government did not meet the minimum standards in several key areas. The government did not convict traffickers during the reporting year. The government did not allocate sufficient funding for its anti-trafficking efforts or victim services and did not implement its standard operating procedures for victim identification. The government did little to combat the system of child domestic servitude. Even though Haiti is making progress today on human trafficking, you can imagine what it must have been like back during the Duvalier regime and the chaotic times that followed. So I don't think that Haiti's population density rules out zombification as one of the forms of human trafficking that takes place there. I suspect the number of working zombies is smaller than often believed, and hopefully it's getting even smaller as human trafficking efforts improve, but I don't think it can be eliminated as a possibility. What about the secret societies that Wade Davis claimed to find evidence of? The existence of such societies in Haiti is not controversial. They go by a variety of names, and they're even mentioned in the Lancet article, which refers to several of them, like Zobop, Bazango, Cochon Gris, and Sect Rouge. In Passage of Darkness, after discussing the criteria an organization needs to have to be classified as a secret society, Davis writes, If we accept the above criteria in defining secret societies, there can be no doubt that such societies exist today throughout Haiti. Names vary from region to region and include Vlinbinding, Zobop, Makandal, Mandig, Cannibal, and a host of other appellations. Individual societies bear specific titles assigned them by their founding presidents. Two generic terms for the societies, known and often employed interchangeably by all Haitians, are Bazango and Sans Pol. A more precise use of these terms, and one recognized by the society members themselves, defines Bazango as the religious rite practiced by the society members, who in turn are referred to as sans pole, or literally, those without skin. So, Bazango is a generic term for these societies that specifically connotes the religious rites they perform, which are based on voodoo. These societies provide benefits to the members of the community who join them, but they also punish members who break the rules. In that way, they're like any other organization. A group must provide perceived benefits or people wouldn't want to join it, but it also needs to maintain group order and cohesion or it will fall apart. One of the things that characterizes Bazango societies is that they tend to operate on the shady side of things. Ritually, they do things that are criticized by other voodoo practitioners as sinister and harmful ceremonies, they also were tied into the Duvalier regime's oppression. 
And in rural areas, they often serve as informal local tribunals in place of the regular justice system. Correct. And that means they can settle grievances involving more than just their own members. So they're also operating outside the regular law, but can impose penalties on ordinary citizens who are not members. A bit like how mob families here in the U.S. can act only with more of a religious ritual component. Anthropologist Alfred Mitro described the Bizango as bands of sorcerers, criminals of a special kind. Both members and non-members can appeal to Bizango leadership with complaints about people in the community, and if the leadership feels that the complaint has merit, it can begin an investigation of the matter. The offenses that might be investigated include the following. 1. Ambition. Excessive material advancement at the obvious expense of family and dependents. 2. Displaying lack of respect for one's fellows. 3. Denigrating the Bazango society. 4. Stealing another man's woman. 5. Spreading loose talk that slanders and affects the well-being of others. 6. Harming members of one's family. 7. Land issues. Any action that unjustly keeps another from working the land. And these are exactly the kinds of things that come up in reported cases of zombification. Davis writes, Clervius Narcisse often fought with various members of his own family. He sired numerous children and then didn't support them. By neglecting these and other community obligations, he managed to save enough money so that his house was the first in the area to have the thatch roof replaced by tin. But although his profligate existence certainly offended his extended family, the dispute with his brother was basically a question of access to land. So serious a dispute between the Narcisse brothers would likely have involved arbitration by the Bazango Society. And members of the Bazango Society state that they are responsible for zombifying wrongdoers. Several Bazango leaders openly declared this to Davis, including one who said, Of course Bazango societies can make their own zombies. Let's say they're going down the street and they meet someone who's been talking wrong or is otherwise in a bad situation. They'll take him and make a zombie out of him. The person could be someone talking wrong. He could be the one who's going and speaking to the government, telling the state that such and such a society is doing this or that. The person hides, but we will catch him. So in addition to the other offenses that Bazango societies often get involved in punishing, we again have the snitches get stitches principle. And that may be part of why the zombification phenomenon isn't better documented, because people don't want to snitch and then be turned into a zombie. Okay, now let's turn to the faith perspective. What can we say about zombies from the faith perspective? Do Bokors have supernatural powers? If they do, it would be because of the spirits that are involved in the voodoo religion. And voodoo is heavily focused on spirits. Not all of the concepts in voodoo correspond directly to how the Christian faith would analyze things, so we'll need to translate between the two religions' terminology to offer an evaluation from the perspective of Christian faith. What's one of the voodoo concepts that's problematic? The idea of the Tibon Anj, which represents a person's awareness, agency, and memory. It's also referred to as the person's zombie astral. This is supposedly a spiritual entity that can be separated from an individual, captured, and entrapped in a physical object, such as a bottle. This is what is supposed to happen in the case of a zombie. You take his zombie astral, leaving you with the physical zombie that you can put to work. 
While people do, of course, have agency, awareness, and memory, from a Christian point of view, these aren't a separate spiritual entity that you can get out of a person and trap in a physical container. From a Christian perspective, therefore, it would seem more likely that the zombie's loss of agency and other mental problems are produced by brain damage or a drug, such as one containing Datura. What about the idea of demons? Could a zombie simply be a possessed person? I believe in taking phenomena at face value until you have evidence otherwise, so normally I'm not a big fan of attributing strange things to demons unless they look like demons. For example, I'm very skeptical of charges that someone is opening themselves up to demonic activity unless they're explicitly invoking spirits. But in voodoo, people are explicitly invoking spirits. In fact, as we'll discuss in a future episode on voodoo, spirit possession is a key part of voodoo ritual and practice. That's what happens in many voodoo ceremonies. The participants invite spirits to come and take temporary possession of their bodies. Of course, they believe these spirits are good, but from a Christian perspective, good spirits don't actually possess people. The good angels don't, the saints don't, the damned can't, and that leaves demons. Therefore, to the extent that spirit possessions are taking place in voodoo, they would be demonic. What about in the case of the zombies themselves? Even though I think demonic activity needs to be taken seriously in case of ordinary voodoo practitioners, the case of zombies seems to be different. The zombies don't seem to display typical characteristics of demonic possession. They're not like what we read about in the Bible, for example. They can barely talk. And they're not displaying preternatural knowledge of events or performing supernatural feats. So while in an individual case, demonic possession might be involved, I don't see this as being a regular feature of the reported experiences. Instead, it seems that the mental illness and drug theories are more promising. And what are the ethics of all this? Is it okay to turn someone into a zombie or use them for labor? It's legitimate for a society to punish people that commit serious offenses. However, this isn't the way to do it. In the first place, many of the offenses involved don't strike me as serious enough to warrant something this drastic, like showing a lack of respect for one's fellows. In the second place, justice should be left to the best justice system you have available, and that shouldn't be local informal tribunals run by criminals. In the third place, zombification would be an extremely dangerous process. If you give people the wrong dose of the zombie toxin, you run a high risk of killing them. And they stand a good chance of being permanently brain damaged, either by the drugs you give them or by temporarily confining them in a tomb without sufficient oxygen. Then, the process of keeping them a zombie, if it involves a second drug, may put them at further risk. And the experience of being kept a zombie is traumatic and dehumanizing. There should be and are better ways to treat prisoners. So I don't see turning people into zombies as a legitimate way to handle crimes. Then what about using zombies for labor? It would be flat wrong to turn someone into a zombie in order to get involuntary slave labor because, you know, slavery. But according to some understandings of the phenomenon, that's really not what's going on here, because 
zombies are terrible workers and you'd be better off paying voluntary workers to do the labor. They'd be much more efficient at it than zombies. If this understanding is correct, then the fact zombies are given labor to do could be understood in two ways. First, it could be understood as part of the punishment. And second, it could be understood as a way of keeping them busy and allowing them to make a contribution, like requiring inmates in American prisons to make license plates and things like that. If the labor is understood as part of the punishment, then it takes on the overall character of the punishment, morally speaking, and I've already said that that's inappropriate. They shouldn't be kept as zombie laborers. They should be handled in some other more humane way. But the situation would be somewhat different for zombies that have escaped. Obviously, high-functioning people like Mr. Narcisse need to get jobs in order to lead a normal life, so as an ex-zombie, it's perfectly fine for him to go get a job and work in the workforce like anybody else. But what about low-functioning people who either were mentally ill or handicapped before zombification or who became ill or handicapped as a result of zombification? In their case, putting them to work would be a kind of work therapy. After all, work is ennobling and adds value to a person's experience in life. And to the extent an escaped zombie is capable of doing work, it could be a good thing that could improve their lives and bring benefit to it. Just like there are work programs for people with intellectual and other disabilities so that they can make a contribution and take pride in what they're doing. So even former zombies could be helped by a kind of work therapy to the extent they're able to participate in it. And that's a hopeful note to end on. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on zombies? Zombies are a real phenomenon. There are people in Haiti who are considered zombies. Some of them even consider themselves zombies. Question is what explains this sociological phenomenon. On that question, I think there's likely more than one explanation that contributes to it. In some cases, it includes factors like mental illness and disabilities, premature burial, mistaken identity, hoaxing or fraud, and the social role that zombies know based on being brought up in a culture that believes in them. However, there also may be factors like the use of drugs to simulate death, the use of drugs to revive and subsequently control zombies, the complicity of local communities in turning people into zombies to punish them, and the involvement of secret societies operating outside the law. I think the authors of The Lancet summarize it pretty well when they say, It is unlikely that there is a single explanation for all zombies. Mistaken identification of a wandering, mentally ill stranger by bereaved relatives is the most likely explanation. People with a chronic schizophrenic illness brain damage, or learning disability are not uncommonly met with wandering in Haiti, and they would be particularly likely to be identified as lacking volition and memory, which are characteristics of a zombie. But we cannot exclude the use of a neuromuscular toxin topically administered together with a local irritant by a bokor to induce catalepsy followed by secret retrieval of the poisoned individual. So, Jimmy, what further resources on zombies can we offer the listener? We'll have a link to Wade Davis's book, Passage of Darkness, The Ethnobiology of the Haitian Zombie, as well as his book, The Serpent and the Rainbow. Also, Garth Haslam's excellent little ebook, Zombies, History, Belief, and Modern Ideas. 
Articles on zombies, revenants, Haiti, Haitian voodoo, the Lancet article we've been quoting from, which is unfortunately behind a paywall. Also articles on the Uncanny Valley, Premature Burial, Clervius Narcisse, Tetrodotoxin, Detura Stramonium, the U.S. State Department report on human trafficking in Haiti, also the movie White Zombie from 1932, the BBC and National Geographic short videos that we've heard some clips from, and also the documentary Interview with a Zombie, which focuses on the Wilfred Dorisant case where you get, you know, him and his family are interviewed right there, as well as Marie Moncour. Excellent. So, Jimmy, I said uh, earlier that we'd have mysterious feedback this time from our Vatican Secret Archives episode. And our first feedback comes from Sean, who sent an email and said, Great episode. It's amazing that just today, the 29th of March, I had a video recommendation all about the Secret Vatican Archives and how they house extraterrestrial skeletons and apocalyptic prophecy. Strange and mysterious indeed. I assume that recommendation was sent to me because YouTube saw that I watched your logical and thorough presentation and figured I needed a second opinion. Yeah, the YouTube algorithm will do things like that. (laughs) Yes. Hopefully it works the other way. So the people who are searching for extraterrestrial skeleton videos in the Vatican archives will also run across us. That's right. Clatter Effect on YouTube writes, They all signed it in England because King Henry would murder them if they didn't. He was a tyrant and adulterer. Yeah, this is a reference to one of the documents that's housed in the Vatican Secret Archives, which is a letter with like 80-something seals hanging off of it from British nobility, urging the Pope of the time to grant Henry VIII an annulment so he could get remarried and have an heir. And yeah, he, he wasn't a great guy. He also wasn't, in principle, too different from a lot of other kings. Yeah. Graciano writes on YouTube, Jimmy, how about files or documents of all church councils, investigations on almost all things on all facets of life, documents on doctrinal processes, etc.? Do they have them there? Well, they're going to have documents on doctrinal processes, you know, like uh, cases where someone's views have been analyzed and are they to see if they're in harmony with the faith or not. They're not going to have all the documents of all of the ecumenical councils because a lot of those have been lost, especially from the very early councils like First Nicaea back in the year 325. For the recent councils, though, like Trent and Vatican I and Vatican II, yeah, they'll have much more thorough records on all those. But, you know, it's an archive rather than a library. So its purpose isn't really to chronicle or, you know, all knowledge ever, but to maintain administrative records. The archivist writes on YouTube, First, thank you for making this episode. I'm greatly interested in archives and libraries of almost any kind, for reasons I hope my chosen screen name typifies, and have always been fascinated by the Vatican archives since I am Catholic and I am a scholar. God bless you, fine gentlemen. Thank you so much, Archivist, and I hope you enjoy, glad you enjoyed this episode and others, because I've seen you comment before. I hope you enjoy a future episode I plan to do on another famous archive, the Library of Alexandria. Nice. Dan writes on YouTube, Jimmy, you should file a request to see the letters whereby Pope Leo XIII engaged Sherlock Holmes to investigate the death of Cardinal Tosca and the problem of the Vatican cameos. Well, I would do so, but I am afraid that the death of Cardinal Tosca and the Vatican cameos affair, like the giant rat of Sumatra, are tales for which the world 
is not yet prepared. <laughs> is, is that a real Sherlock Holmes story, Jimmy? Yeah, well, yeah, no, these are all three of them. Uh, The death of Cardinal Tosca and the Vatican cameos were two cases that Sherlock Holmes undertook for Pope Leo XIII, (laughs) but they're not recorded by Dr. Watson in his memoirs, Uh as is the case of, the same is true of the case of the giant rat of Sumatra. It it was a case that Sherlock investigated, but Dr. Watson did not record it because the world was not yet prepared for it. Oh, okay. That's a shame. I'd love to read those stories, but I guess we'll... there have been many attempts to reconstruct them. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Dave writes on YouTube, okay, now I want an episode on the Great Fire of Rome. Well, we will definitely be talking about the Great Fire of Rome in a future episode on Nero, because Mm -hmm. it played a big role in his development and in the early persecution of the Christian church. And so the Great Fire of Rome will be coming up in a future episode. And if you want to hear us discuss a fictional version of the Great Fire of Rome, (laughs) check out our recent episode we did on Secrets of Doctor Who, where the first doctor went to uh, Rome and met Nero. That was a lot of fun. (laughs) Rick writes on Facebook, I enjoyed this episode very much. Those who tend toward the conspiracy side of things will be greatly dissatisfied and disappointed. Well, true. But fortunately, people seem to have been reasonable. We haven't gotten a lot of complaints about, wait, but what about all the alien skeletons that should be there and stuff? So most people seem to be pretty reasonable. Dan writes on Facebook, I would love to go to the Vatican with Jimmy and hear him correct the tour guides. Me too, Dan. (laughs) Well, at some point that may be possible. It would, uh, but I'll only correct them if two conditions are met. One, they say something is wrong. And two, I know it to be wrong. (laughs) Right. Future uh, SQPN pilgrimage would be fun to, to Rome. So that's it for our mysterious feedback. Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines? Uh, Well, we have an aliens theme this time. We were just talking about alien skeletons that aren't in the Vatican archives, but (laughs) a more promising place to look for alien artifacts might be the moon, because the moon has a very stable environment and it would be a logical place for alien probes or, you know, aliens to visit and leave some sign of their existence because it's not subject to all the weathering that we have down here on Earth. So even if they visited a billion years ago, we might still be able to find their stuff. Mm. On the other hand, we may not want to be found by aliens. So our second story is about how to cloak Earth from alien eyes, how to build an effectual cloaking device that would keep them from being able to observe us the way we've been observing planets in other solar systems lately. Mm. Speaking of Doctor Who, maybe a giant perception filter. <laughs> well, that's essentially what this that's essentially what this is. It's a way to change the light being emitted by our solar system so that it doesn't look like our solar system or our planet is what it actually is. Ooh, interesting. Um, I'm looking forward to, to reading that. Yeah, because we're developing techniques now that will allow us to detect biomarkers from the atmospheres ah. of exoplanets. And they if we can do that, they can do the same thing to us. So how can we make it look like there's no life here? <laughs> no one's home. <laughs> yeah. All right. Excellent. So that's it for us. So what do you think of these, the stories of zombies, the, the reported zombie drug and the role that secret societies play? What are your theories? What, let us know by visiting 
sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, or sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world. And also be sure to check out the Mysterious World bookstore at mysteriousworldstore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. Once again, I'm Dom Bethanelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest.